Nuclear hot seat. What are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat. What have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat. The corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things anti-nuclear. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what it looks like when the so-called experts in the nuclear world get it wrong. This week we'll be talking with Tim Judson, newly installed as the Executive Director of the Nuclear Information and Resource Service, NEARS. We'll talk movement strategy, and Tim will reveal some startling facts about energy that point to that nuclear slumlord's soft, vulnerable underbelly. We'll talk with Kumar Sundaram in India on Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abebe's pending visit to India to promote his nuclear agenda. And, of course, Mimi Gurman with the Radcast Radiation Weather Report. All this and more, more, more will be coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, January 14, 2014, and here is the week's anti-nuclear news. We're starting this week with an ocean report from both sides of the Pacific. In Japan, fish with deadly levels of radioactive cesium have been caught just off the coast of Fukushima Prefecture. Of 37 black sea bream specimens caught some 37 kilometers south of the crippled power plant, one tested at 12,400 becquerels per kilogram of radioactive cesium, making it 124 times deadlier than the threshold considered safe for human consumption in Japan. This according to the Japan Fisheries Research Agency. The samples were caught in Iwaki, Fukushima Prefecture, on November 17th. Two other fish caught there also tested non-safe for human consumption in Japan, showing radiation levels of 426 and 197 becquerels per kilogram. Unsafe there, but considered safe in the United States. Isn't it amazing the benefits that come with U.S. citizenship, where anything with less than 1,200 becquerels per kilogram of cesium is considered so safe, we don't even test for it. But that may be changing. In Salamander Bay in Australia, hundreds of thousands of Pacific oysters have died since late last year. According to veteran Salamander Bay oyster grower Robert Demar, we lost 600,000 oysters over a couple of weeks. We are struggling to find any live ones. A spokeswoman for the Elizabeth MacArthur Agricultural Institute at Menangle said, It's not yet clear what is causing the mortality event. It could be an environmental factor. In all submissions tested to date, there is no evidence of a disease consistent with a known infectious agent. Species collapse in the Pacific of unknown origin? Could it be the F word? In the U.S., our elected officials are starting to wake up to the problem. A California assemblyman began pushing last Friday for transparency about Fukushima reactor meltdown radiation contaminating the Pacific coast of the United States and slowly poisoning people. Assemblymember Bob Wykowski 
representing the California 25th Assembly District near San Francisco, said last Friday, January 10th, millions of Californians live in communities that are directly impacted by contamination in the ocean. The Assemblyman says online speculation is driving concerns among his constituents. He said, I think it's important for the State Department of Public Health to put what information it has in layman's terms onto its homepage so the public can see it and understand what, if any, risks or concerns are out there. In the UC Santa Barbara Daily Nexus, opinion editor Emil Nelson wrote, Santa Barbara needs to start paying attention to how the aftermath of the crisis at Fukushima is being handled because it will absolutely affect our future one way or another. Well, the government may not be reacting, but others are. Researchers for Cal State University in Long Beach are set to monitor the state's kelp forests for radioactive contamination resulting from the meltdown at Fukushima. Radioactive iodine traces from the March 11, 2011 earthquake, tsunami, and meltdown had been detected a month after it happened in kelp forests along the Orange County shoreline. An ongoing study, which has been dubbed Kelp Watch 2014, aims to examine samples of giant kelp and bull kelp all along the California coast. CSULB biology professor Stephen L. Manley said, The California kelp forest is a highly productive and complex ecosystem and a valuable state resource. It is imperative that we monitor this coastal forest for any radioactive contaminants that will be arriving this year in the ocean currents from the Fukushima disaster. Nineteen different academic and government institutions are participating in the project. And as of today, January 14, the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution marine chemist Ken Busler has announced that he has launched a crowdsourcing campaign and citizen science website to collect and analyze seawater along the west coast of North America. Busler, who is a senior scientist and director of the Center for Marine and Environmental Radioactivity, said, Whether you agree with predictions that levels of radiation along the Pacific coast of North America will be too low to be of human health concern or to impact fisheries and marine life, we can all agree that radiation should be monitored, and we are asking for your help to make that happen. This is being done through the website, How Radioactive Is Our Ocean? He said, We already have dozens of seawater samples from the coast of Japan out to the middle of the Pacific, but now we need new samples from up and down the west coast of North America and across the Pacific. We'll have a link to this story and a way for you to participate on our website, nuclearhotseat.com slash blog, under episode number 134. Moving over to Japan... Former Prime Minister Morihiro Hosokawa said on Tuesday he will be running in the upcoming Tokyo gubernatorial election with an anti-nuclear agenda. This after securing the backing of popular and now anti-nuclear former Prime Minister Junichiro Koizumi. Hosokawa told reporters, I have a sense of crisis myself that the country's various problems, especially nuclear power plants, are matters of survival for the country. Koizumi indicated the main focus of the election will be whether to pursue nuclear power or not, calling the election, quote, a war between the group that says Japan can grow with zero nuclear power plants and the group that says it cannot. But it has been pointed out to me by activists with direct ties to Japan that Hosokawa's candidacy could split the vote against the Labor Democratic Party of Prime Minister Shinzo Abe 
and guarantee a pro-nuclear candidate wins. Also, Hosokawa made the bizarre statement that parts of the Olympic Games should be held in Fukushima, especially the marathon events. Now, that could be really arch and sarcastic of him, but somehow the true intent is not clear, especially if it's meant to be anti-nuclear. If that's not crazy enough for you, maybe this is. Nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, none that's not awake. As regards the elections in Tokyo, Prime Minister Shinzo Abe Baby, trying to steer the discussion, said, Candidates need to discuss not only the issue of nuclear energy, but also other issues facing Tokyo properly. So what are these issues, according to Pinocchio Abe? Preparations for the 2020 Olympics, and a long list of children waiting to enroll in nursery schools. You think that the 2020 Olympics have nothing to do with the nuclear issue in your country, with Fukushima just around the corner and the radiation still present? And as for those children waiting to get into nursery school, how many of them have been rescued from Fukushima and relocated at least as far as Tokyo so they're not in the immediate environment? Dude, you gotta get your priorities straight. It's Fukushima above everything or you won't have a country. And that's why you, Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, baby, are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed. A study in Japan has confirmed that it would be impossible to evacuate all residents before radiation exposure in the wake of a severe nuclear accident. The minimum time required to evacuate everyone within 30 kilometers of a facility would be at least 12 hours. But in some instances, such as Tokai Nuclear Power Plant in Ibaraki Prefecture, it could take five and a half days. The 740,000 citizens who live around the Hamaoka nuclear power plant in Shizuoka Prefecture would require at least six days to complete their evacuation. Can you imagine how long it would take if Indian Point, 35 miles from downtown Manhattan, had a major accident? According to our friend Iori Mochizuki, who writes Fukushima Diary, radiation is still rising at Fukushima, especially outside of Reactor 2. Since December 26th, readings have gone up 14% to a record of 2,400,000,000 becquerels per cubic meter of radiation. Contamination levels keep increasing even as TEPCO denies the possibility of further leakage and states it's possible the groundwater pump is gathering highly contaminated water underground. Nah, it's swamp gas. Here's the Nuclear Regulatory Commission duck, report. Icy conditions pulled the plug on power generation at the Fort Calhoun power plant. Omaha Public Power District says sub-freezing temperatures caused an ice buildup on one of six sluice gates in the plant's Missouri River water intake structure. Enough ice to keep the gate from fully closing. Over the last two and a half years, OPPD spent $1.5 billion in upgrades and future maintenance contracts, and they forgot about Nebraska winter ice. And on January 9th in Florida, 
the St. Lucie Unit 1 declared an unusual event based on a severe rainstorm. Visual sightings by station personnel were that water levels were approaching storm drain system capacity. So nukes can't withstand ice and they can't withstand rain. Can we return them for a refund? Meanwhile, in Columbia, South Carolina, that state's Department of Health and Environmental Control confirmed to the governor's Nuclear Advisory Council that a plume of radioactive tritium is in the groundwater. The plume is moving off the Barnwell nuclear site southwest towards the Savannah River site. According to Tom Clements, who is Southeast Nuclear Campaign Coordinator for Friends of the Earth, the site receives toxic waste from South Carolina, New Jersey, and Connecticut. The problem is, in their annual updates, there's no plan to address the leaks. A DHEC spokesmodel, Susan Jenkins, told the Advisory Council that the site, quote, is in compliance, end quote, and says the latest measurements show the amount of tritium below federal compliance levels. But Clements points out that the recorded level is much higher than federal drinking water standards. So, according to the government, the water is safe unless you want to drink it. Activists in Taiwan are trying to further lower the allowed level of radioactive contamination in food allowed for sale in their country. The current standards is 370 becquerels per kilogram, set soon after the Chernobyl disaster. There is a push, however, to lower it to 100 becquerels per kilogram, the same as Japan, which is still too high. Taiwan may already have a somewhat lower standard compared to other countries, but actual testing results are not disclosed. By way of contrast, in Hong Kong, the government intervention level is much higher at 1,000 becquerels per kilogram, but all testing results, even for foods below the 1,000 becquerels per kilogram threshold, are published. This allows consumers to decide for themselves and shows a level of accountability in the government. The U.S., of course, as previously mentioned, has the highest level of acceptable radionuclides in food in the entire world at 1,200 becquerels per kilogram, does not test, and, of course, there are no posted results, ever. When it comes to radionuclides in the food, the U.S. has the transparency of a brick wall. At Chernobyl in Ukraine, an old ventilation stack shared by Units 3 and 4 have been dismantled. This is so that a new sarcophagus can be installed over the damaged reactor building. The new structure is necessary because the original concrete sarcophagus is deteriorating. In fact, it was never expected to have any efficacy beyond 30 years. And April 26th of this year marks the 28th anniversary of the worst nuclear disaster ever until Fukushima. Some good activist news out of the UK. Charges were dropped against five women members of the Muriel Lester's Trident Plowshares Affinity Group, who were on trial in Reading Magistrates Court for non-violently blocking the private road to the atomic weapons establishment, Bergfield, on Monday, September 2nd of last year. The judge awarded costs to all five after Jean Taylor, one of their members who is in a wheelchair, said, We wanted to oppose what is going on at AWE Bergfeld, the maintenance of Trident nuclear warheads, and the development of new weapons of mass destruction. The action was part of the big blockade by Trident plowshares, part of the ongoing Action AWE campaign, 
to stop the building of nuclear weapons of mass destruction and use the skills of the workers to clean up and get rid of nuclear weapons and develop a just green economy. I spoke this morning, February 14, with Kumar Sundaram, one of the leaders of India's anti-nuclear movement, about Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe Baby's upcoming trip to India to cement some nuclear deals. Kumar spoke to us via Skype. Kumar Sundaram, welcome back to Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you so much, Libby. I am always glad to speak to you about my campaigns and the scene here in India. What is going on? Shinzo Abe is going to be visiting India on nuclear issues. Give us a brief background on what's happening. Shinzo Abe is visiting India this January, later this month. On 26 January, he will be the chief guest in the uh, Republic Day ceremony when uh, this country showcases all its ugly military hardware, which is uh, annual ritual. Uh, but important thing about this visit is this is not just a formal uh, formality. In, during his visit, the two countries will try to finalize India-Japan nuclear agreement, which has been in pipeline for a long time. The nuclear corporates in Japan have been pushing hard for it. Obviously, the Indian government has trying to get an agreement with Japan. And also, there have been international pressure and international interests, which are very, very powerful. Let me tell you that in India, despite having an agreement with U.S. four years back, the American reactors have not really taken off on the ground precisely because the two projects which America uh, wants to uh, uh, set up in India, one is a Westinghouse project and another one is a GE project in a place called Kovada. Now, what has changed in recent years is Westinghouse has become Westinghouse Toshiba and GE has General Electrical has become GE Hitachi. So both these companies have now a major Japanese ownership and because of this reason, it's a compulsion that India must have a technical agreement with Japan. And that is why uh, U.S. has been pushing Japan to have an agreement with India, despite the fact they have not been able to fix Fukushima. After Fukushima, they have been forced to shut down all their reactors. And in Japan, there is a massive anti-nuclear movement. So this is the whole backdrop in which Japan and India are trying to uh, clinch this agreement, which is being opposed very bitterly in India as well. As you know that uh, at several grassroots places like Kudankulam, Jaitapur, uh, the two places where I just mentioned the American projects are coming up in Kovada and Mithivizri, there are very strong grassroots protests where villagers, people, common people, farmers, fisher folk, they are protesting because uh, they are going to lose their livelihood. It's going to threaten their safety and security uh, and, and the whole environment there. So they are larger. Uh, there's a wide number of issues that these protests have raised. There's also the question of Indian nuclear industry's complete uh, non-transparency and complete unaccountability. And the whole question of uh, you know, energy alternatives, which should be relooked in a post-Fukushima world. So there are movements, there are very strong movements in India and uh, in all these grassroots uh, places uh, where there are anti-nuclear movements, 
Prime Minister Shinzo Abe visit will be strongly protested. Uh, apart from the local protest in all these places, we have also planned a nationwide protest which is ongoing. So you made a request that I found this morning on Facebook for international participation in this extremely coordinated and what's probably going to be very large set of protests against Shinzo Abe. What is it that you are asking of the rest of us? Yeah, uh, I'd like to uh, tell you that in India we'll definitely have strong protests. We'll have very strong protests in all these villages, countryside, and then city-based protests wherever uh, there is strong civil society uh, presence. We'll have protests in cities like Delhi, Mumbai, Kolkata, Chennai, definitely Hyderabad, and a few other cities as well. We have uh, sent out an open request to the international community and particularly to the activists in Japan that we need their solidarity, their support in raising our voice against uh, the India-Japan nuclear agreement. We welcome Shinzo Abe. We want better relationship between the two Asian countries. But we want that the two countries should learn the lessons of Fukushima and actually should cooperate on green and uh, sustainable energy rather than pushing for this nuclear nightmare. So what we have requested the international community is support us by taking this campaign ahead. The campaign is very simple. We have had a we have designed a poster which says, Mr. Shinzo Abe, you are most welcome to India, but nukes are not. And we have requested everybody to take a printout of this poster or just flash it on their tablet or laptop, whatever, and take a snap of themselves uh, with this poster and send it to us. We are putting together all these uh, these pictures. And by 24th, we'll uh, come out with a huge collage with all these individual pictures, all these individual messages, voices. Obviously, the poster has been translated in several languages. And uh, these huge collages will put at all eminent, prominent places in India, like Gateway of India and in Mumbai and in India, the India Gate and other places. So this is the whole idea, and that is why we have requested everybody to join us and support our voice. Where can they find a copy of this poster to print it out? It's widely circulated. It's there on the Dianuke website. It's there on the website of Coalition uh, for Nuclear Disarmament and Peace. We have also circulated on the uh, Facebook special invita- event, event page, which has been created for this campaign. It's available there as well. What I will do is post the available links on Nuclear Hot Seat so that people can find it if they haven't found it elsewhere. We need to take a lot of pictures, and we need to get them to you. Is the email also connected, or do we need to post on Facebook? Our email is cndpindia.gmail.com, cndpindia.gmail.com, and the website is cndpindia.org. So it's very simple, and it's there on Facebook event page as well. So I would request, I would like to reach out to more and more people through your nuclear hot seat, which is very, very well uh, reputed and well received. So I hope many more friends will join and extend their solidarity to our protest. Thank you so much, Kumar, and do keep us informed. Thank you so much, Libre. Kumar Sundaram from India. We'll have a link up to the Facebook page with a copy of the poster on it. It will be on our website, nuclearhotseat.com slash blog under episode 134. Or just go straight to Facebook, search under the word nuclear, and you will find it. A reminder that Nuclear Hot Seat needs your donations to keep going, 
growing, and improving. If you have come to rely on the news, interviews, numbnuts of the week, NRC Doc report, my whacked out sense of humor, and all the rest, help me keep bringing them to you. There's a big red donate button on the homepage at nuclearhotseat.com. So please, use it. I wish I were a retired internet billionaire and could bankroll this whole movement by myself. But that hasn't happened yet in this lifetime. So for now, whatever you can do to help, know that I really appreciate it. Now today's interview. We were all in this movement saddened to learn that Michael Marriott, the longtime executive director of Nuclear Information and Resource Service, has been forced to step back from his position because of ill health. Michael will continue with the organization as president, but the executive director spot is now filled by Tim Judson, a longtime anti-nuclear activist. Nuclear Hot Seat thought that since we're going to be working with this man for a long, long time, now would be the perfect time to get to know him. Tim Judson, welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat. Great. Thanks, Libby. In stepping into the role of executive director of NEARS, we're all going to be hearing a lot from you in the coming months and years. So briefly, just so we get a chance to know who you are, tell us a bit about your background as regards your work on the nuclear issue. Uh, I've been involved in in nuclear power issues primarily at the grassroots uh, for about 15 years. Uh, My hometown is Syracuse, New York, uh, which is just downwind from four nuclear reactors um, on Lake Ontario. And uh, when I got active on the issue back in 1998, uh, or 97 actually, um, there were some new nuclear safety problems happening at the Nine Mile Point reactor um, on Lake Ontario. Uh, we weren't really sure sort of, you know, exactly what to do about it. And that sort of started a long process of me getting active and engaged and informed. And I originally uh, became acquainted with Nuclear Information and Resource Service, which is where I'm now going to be stepping in as executive director you know, who was helping us figure out a campaign strategy for taking on this dangerous reactor. Um, I, in the process of doing all that organizing, got hooked up with an organization that was based in New England called Citizens Awareness Network. And uh, that was really where I sort of found my home. That was um, where I've, the, you know, the group that I've been working with until I came to NEARS. CAN is, like I said, a grassroots group originally based in New England. Uh, we started a New York chapter. Um, CAN is sort of an interesting story in its own right, um, having been um, a grassroots organization that's been involved in shutting three reactors, or actually four reactors in New England now, with the campaign that we just won in Vermont, uh, closing the Vermont Yankee reactor. And so that's really sort of you know, kind of where I'm coming from. Um, CAN is an organization that has also had a long history working on radioactive waste issues, um, and especially in building solidarity between reactor communities and waste communities um, around issues of environmental justice um, and responsible and ethical disposal of radioactive waste. And so that's kind of the perspective that I'm bringing to my work at NEARS and, you know, where I see um, a lot of um, our emphasis sort of happening over the next decade uh, with more and more reactor closures and then more and more issues coming up in terms of what we do with waste. What do you see as the key issues for the organization and those of us who are in the movement nationally to focus on? We're really at a pivotal moment in the history of nuclear power and and in the history of the anti-nuclear movement. This year, just as a for instance, you know, we've seen a record number of reactor closures happening around the country. And it really, to most people, came out of nowhere. 
we had five operating reactors um, close or announce that they're closing this year, um, which has never happened before in the history of the industry. And we also had uh, eight reactor projects, eight new reactor projects canceled. And so effectively, what was touted as a nuclear renaissance just a few years ago is now on the verge of a nuclear collapse. And I think that, you know, the new anti-nuclear movement is really, you know, on the cusp of pushing this industry really to the, to the brink of irrelevance. And that's really, I think, where Nears' focus is going to be. Uh, but at the same time, what it raises are these really fundamental issues about radioactive waste that are going to become more and more central as reactors close and communities are looking for solutions for what to do with for what to do about this hazard that's still going to reside in their communities that at the same time this is an industry that isn't going to go away easily and they're pushing for a lot of policy solutions to help them kind of bridge the gap between now and whatever they feel like their next political moment is going to be to revive themselves and one of the really central things that they're doing is pushing for essentially a wholesale deregulation of radioactive waste in the country and primarily through pushing the government to take ownership of the high-level radioactive waste, the irradiated fuel rod sitting at pools of water at reactor sites around the country, have the government take ownership of that and move it to essentially temporary storage sites around the country simply to get it off the industry's books and to set a precedent for the government taking waste from the industry and allowing them to produce it without essentially any limits. Let's go a little more deeply into some of these issues and how they're operating so we can get a sense of how we as activists around the country can step in and leverage them to our benefit. Let's talk about the waste issue. How can Mm -hmm. we become involved in making a difference, be it in the local community, with the NRC, with legislation? Where do you see the best strategy coming from? Well, I think we have a lot of work to do right now to get Congress to stop listening to the industry on on nuclear waste. There was a really bad bill that was put forward this year um, by the Senate Energy Committee that would have pushed this whole program, which we call Mobile Chernobyl, um, which is you know this program of putting thousands and thousands of shipments of high-level radioactive waste on the roads to these temporary storage sites that they want to uh, that they want to designate. That bill is a a bill that really no one is happy with because the senators who are sponsoring it are trying to put together a bipartisan proposal that could actually make it through Congress. And what we, what I think they've seen this year is that, you know, with the give and take uh, between the conservatives and the industry and trying to do something that would be palatable to the environmental community, there really hasn't been a feasible solution. And our concern is that essentially that they're going to opt more towards what the industry wants. Uh, which is going to be an even worse proposal than what we saw this year. You know, it's really essential that people around the country begin contacting their senators um, and their Congress people, letting them know that they want a responsible solution to, to radioactive waste, that this mobile Chernobyl proposal is not going to fly and is actually going to create more dangers than what we need is a responsible radioactive waste policy in this country. Does NEARS have any sample letters, for example, that we might be able to grab and then send along as either email or physical mail to our elected representatives? What we actually have on our website is a, is a petition that we've, that we've been circulating for the last few months. In October, we delivered the first round of these uh, petitions to the Senate Energy Committee, and that seemed to actually put the brakes on it for the time being. We you know we've collected four or 5,000 signatures in that petition so far, so in terms of immediate action, that would be the best thing that people can do. Or take the language in the petition and, and sort of adapt it to make their own letters. 
what are some of the economic trends that are happening around nukes that we can, again, be aware of, bring to the awareness of our elected representatives, and perhaps exploit in helping them to go away as quickly as possible? A really good question. And it's really, I think, the defining moment that we're in right now with nuclear power. What you've seen happen this year is five operating reactors closed. And this was really unexpected for most people because the logic then that nuclear power is, you know, one of the cheapest sources of electricity for reactors that are, that are already built and operated. Most of the current generation of nuclear reactors were bailed out um, by the state many, many years ago. And so their only existing cost, I mean, the only going forward cost is the cost of fuel and operation. The mammoth cost of building these things has already been absorbed by, by ratepayers in some fashion. What's very, very interesting is that actually, as these reactors age, the cost of them are going up. And what we've also seen is a countervailing trend, which is that through the cost of natural gas really plummeting over the last several years, as well as renewable energy becoming more and more affordable, that actually electricity rates in most parts of the country, in many parts of the country, have become so low that actually nuclear power is not able to be profitable for a lot of reactors. And so what we saw this year were two very telling examples. Uh, one was, was, a, was a reactor in Wisconsin called Kiwani, uh, which, which shut down. They announced that it was going to close last October, and it shut down permanently in May. And that was really, for a lot of Wall Street analysts, a real, real shock, because they had been doing analyses of the nuclear power industry, assuming that it was going to be profitable no matter what happened with the cost of electricity. And, and that began to raise some questions. What we saw happen, the second example in August was the announcement of the closure of Vermont Yankee. And that was, you know, a large part of product of the years of organizing that was done to make that reactor politically problematic, but that also prevented uh, its operator, Entergy, from being able to leverage any kind of financial sort of incentives to keep it going. With these smaller single unit reactors, they've been kind of the, the, the canaries in the coal mine that have really showed the, the real strain that the industry is going to be undergoing forward. Has there ever been any kind of outreach to the Wall Street community to raise their awareness of the weakness of nuclear? And might that be something that we might pursue? Well, it's interesting. It's actually happening the other way around right now. Wall Street has been kind of the ones blowing the whistle on the on the bad economics of this industry for several years. For instance, when the industry was pushing the Bush administration for new incentives to be able to build new reactors, it was because they, they couldn't get Wall Street to buy into the notion of financing uh, new nuclear construction. Wall Street was saying that there was just really no way they saw that could be profitable. It was way too risky. They couldn't get any private financing to build a new nuke. And so that's when the industry lobbied the Bush administration to step in with billions of dollars in guaranteed loans to allow them to basically build nukes. And if they failed, it didn't matter because the taxpayers were going to absorb the cost. What we're seeing now is following the announcement of the Kiwani reactor closing last year, um, now approaching half a dozen Wall Street firms have put out analyses saying this industry is really in trouble. We knew that new, that new nukes weren't going to fly, but now what we're seeing is existing reactors potentially closing in droves. And they've actually come up with lists of which reactors they think are most likely to shut down. And they really dovetail with, with this pattern where smaller reactors are most at risk, but then even some larger reactors and some multi-unit reactor sites are also going to be in danger just because they can't compete with the other sources of power that we have right now. 
So looking at this from a strategic perspective, how might we within the activist community exploit this information and who would we best get it in the hands of in order to promote our perspective to not build any new ones and shut down the ones we've got? People really ought to be communicating with their state utility commissioners. This is a trend that I think is increasingly coming to the awareness of of state energy commissioners. But unless they hear from people at the grassroots and from people, consumers in their states, they're likely to to hear only the narrative the industry is telling, which is that if nuclear plants shut down, there's going to be real reliability problems for electricity service and brownouts and blackouts and whatnot, or price spikes that are going to hurt consumers. And this really is not the case. And in fact, the reason that a lot of these plants are in danger economically is because they're just not competitive and they're not needed. And so state utility commissioners and governors uh, need to be hearing from people that, uh, that they don't want any subsidies or benefits to be given to this industry to keep them going. But really what we ought to be doing is looking for renewable energy solutions, the transition to a sustainable, sustainable energy economy, rather than continuing to prop up dangerous, old, uncompetitive nuclear power plants. That brings me to another strategy that I think is underutilized by our community, and that is the building of alliances with those who are already working in comparable areas that we could perhaps align ourselves with. For example, renewables. How do you think we might be able to build alliances and build political and economic force in aligning ourselves with renewables, what are some steps that we might take? Being as strong an advocate as possible for renewable energy, sustainable energy is really key. And being out there in front, you know, talking about the benefits of that industry, talking about uh, the need for, you know, increasing, uh, you know, renewable portfolio standards for states to derive more and more of a percentage of their electricity from renewables. I think those things are all really key and make ourselves good allies to the sustainable energy implementers. One of the things that we should be doing is breaking out of the anti-nuclear silo more. I mean, NEARS has really been doing this a lot, you know, over the last several years through building coalitions and joining alliances with the broader safe energy, sustainable energy community. But I think there's some concrete things that that, that people can do. For instance, um, in New York, there's a really exciting coalition that's come together, which NEARS is a part of, called the Alliance for a Green Economy. That's a statewide organization that was originally spearheaded by anti-nuclear groups, sort of looking for not just, you know, the closure of reactors in New York, but but really the bigger picture solution of how do we move to a sustainable energy system. AGREE is now a, a statewide alliance. They're really working with the anti-fracking movement. They're working with, uh, you know, the anti-coal movement. They're working increasingly with people who are local coalitions that are uh, that are implementing sustainable energy plans in their communities, really trying to build sort of an umbrella movement around the transition to a sustainable energy economy with an agenda that everyone can buy into. And concretely, what they're, what, what AGREE is trying to get done is um, to get the state to fund a study to map out the process for how New York State can transition from its current energy system to a 100% renewable energy-based system within the 2050 timeframe which we need to get to effectively zero carbon emissions in order to avert the worst of climate change. They're also holding a sustainable energy visioning summit in the beginning of February to formally bring that coalition together and map out um, that vision, which people can be using to organize together 
you know, for the next you know, decade or two that it's going to take to make this happen. Those are the kind of alliances that are really going to be necessary to build the groundwork to sustain that transition. And, you know, in the meantime, can also be useful in building the relationships between the anti-nuclear movement and the sustainable energy advocates. So building those kind of alliances can really establish the relationships that are going to be necessary to, to build the campaigns to close reactors through a green energy transition. And that's really where we see the future of the movement going. What alliance, if any, is there, meaning financially, between what we're doing and renewables and the commercial solar industry? Because it's not just a movement of activists with a perspective. There's also an industry behind it for solar panels and installation and the like. What, if any, financial support has been coming from that quarter? Very little, as far as I know. I mean, I think that that rightly, you know, perhaps uh, the sustainable energy community has kind of stayed away from a direct connection to people, you know, working to end nuclear power or other fuel sources because they're up against the big dogs themselves. And, you know, a lot of state energy plans don't adequately or even the federal energy policies don't adequately distinguish uh, between the kinds of benefits that renewable energy sources get versus what nuclear and coal and natural gas get. There really hasn't been a strong financial connection between uh, the anti-nuclear movement and the renewable energy industry. And for better or for worse, I think that's just got to do with a historical reality that the renewable energy industry faces, which is that the benefits that they get from from the government in terms of subsidies or tax credits are not fundamentally different from the kinds of benefits that non-renewable energy sources are also getting. So politically, they've had to kind of remain unto themselves in, uh, in that way. We hope to see that changing as this movement um, you know, really takes steam. We, we think that there's going to be more and more opportunity for those kind of direct alliances between the people who are fighting the, fight, you know, fighting the bad and people who are working for the good. Let's go back to looking for some strategies. What are some of the weaknesses within the nuclear industry that activists can exploit? Well, they're extremely vulnerable to costs going up right now. Every safety upgrade that nuclear power plants have to make, for instance, there's a whole slew of things that have been proposed uh, for reactors to do to make themselves, for reactor owners to make their plants safer following the Fukushima accident. And there's a real tug and pull right now with the Nuclear Regulatory Commission about what they're actually going to require. And sadly and frustratingly, the NRC seems to be giving way to the industry's economic vulnerability as a rationale for not requiring some important safety upgrades. Uh, we think that people, you know, and our government representatives ought to be really putting the screws to NRC to make sure that they don't compromise safety for the financial survival of an economically uncompetitive industry. As we're talking about economics, explain to us about the Entergy and Nuclear Regulatory Commission financial cover-up. This is actually a story that um, that is going to be building over the next few months, and people really ought to be paying attention because it really is the story of the danger that this industry poses right now. Uh, Entergy is actually the second largest nuclear power plant operator in the country. They own 11 reactors, and they operate a 12th under contract. Um, they're second only to a company called Exelon, which operates over 20 nuclear reactors. But Entergy and Exelon have been kind of the big targets of these Wall Street analyses this year that have been talking about the danger the industry is in, primarily because they're, they're the two companies that have the largest exposure to this risk. 
but Entergy's reactors, um, at least three of them have been named as being uh, vulnerable to closure, early closure for economic reasons. And actually, one of the analysts, a firm called UBS, even recommended essentially that they get out of uh, what's called the merchant nuclear business entirely. What they mean by the merchant nuclear business are the nuclear power plants that operate in states where the electricity system is deregulated. And so these are companies that, you know, they, they can't go to rate payers when their costs increase. They only generate revenues by selling electricity on the wholesale market. And that means that when their costs go up or when the market price of electricity goes down, they're really vulnerable economically. And that's really where Entergy operates a majority of its plants. The majority of these reactors that Entergy is in trouble with are in the Northeast. And so there's the Vermont Yankee reactor, which, as I mentioned, just closed. Uh, the Pilgrim reactor in Massachusetts and the Fitzpatrick reactor in upstate New York on Lake Ontario, where I'm from. And uh, we pulled together a coalition of the groups that are uh, that are watchdogging each of those reactors earlier this year and put in a petition to the NRC, essentially alleging that they were in violation of NRC safety requirements, that they be, that the uh, that the company operating the reactor uh, is financially qualified to, to run it safely. And what we put together was these information from these Wall Street analysts at UBS uh, showing that they actually these these plants are running massive deficits going forward that they that they just simply aren't profitable and in fact that uh, that there's going to be tremendous pressure on energy to be cutting costs in order to minimize their losses and that this is really an unacceptable situation and that NRC needed to step in and, and shut these reactors down preemptively because they're in violation of these financial regulations. Where do you see this going and how might we leverage it against energy? Well, so this is what's happening. So we, um, in a meeting with the NRC about this petition in May, raised an, an increasing amount of information coming out about safety problems that are already happening at these reactors that are clearly related to energy deferring maintenance and, and large expenses to keep them operating safely and reliably. And we also raised the issue that, um, that, it, uh, that this doesn't necessarily just affect those three reactors, that it actually affects the other reactors in Entergy's merchant nuclear division that might not be unprofitable, but that are drawing on the same pool of resources and that are, in fact, sort of floating the whole business themselves. So that even though, for instance, the Indian Point reactors near New York City are profitable, there's just as much pressure on energy to cut costs on those reactors as it is on the other ones because they need to generate as much money as they can in order to make the whole business work. And the staff at the NRC, which is an interesting dynamic, seem to actually really take our petition seriously. In November, there was a letter submitted to the NRC by Senator Markey and Senator Sanders based on an allegation that came from someone, someone on NRC staff who went to them and said that, uh, that in June, NRC staff had prepared some requests for information, basically to Entergy, uh, requesting their financial information on all of their merchant nuclear reactors. This was just about a month after we had this meeting where we raised this concern with them. And NRC was then called by Entergy and told to back off. And the NRC management then basically quashed this investigation initiated by their staff in response to our petitions, and then told them, told the staff to never look into the finances of nuclear power plant operators again. Do you have this in writing? Yes, we actually have the letter uh, that the senator sent to the NRC requesting essentially that, they, that the NRC respond to this allegation. But the NRC's response, do we have any documentation on that? We don't know whether they've actually responded to the senators or not. 
And so what we're what we're seeing happening potentially is a real cover up of the really dangerous state of the industry's finances. And, and we're hoping that this is going to get attention in Congress uh, to really pry this can open because it's got you know implications not just for energy, obviously, but for nuclear power plants across the country. This is obviously a story that we're going to want to watch very closely, and I invite you to get any information about that to us here at Nuclear Hot Seat so that we can keep our listenership informed, because this seems like it could lead to, this could be a breaking point. We think so. It's one of these things where, on the face of it, it's obvious that if you can't run a nuclear power plant profitably, just as we saw with, you know, with Wall Street, what happened when they realized that the mortgage crisis was about to burst, that it really presents a, you know, a much bigger safety issue for, for people across the country. And we think that it deserves that kind of attention. And we hope that the Congress will, uh, you know, will, will, will make the NRC act on it. Give the listeners to Nuclear Hot Seat a sense of the kinds of support that NEARS can provide for them in their local movement. We at NEARS can do a lot to help grassroots groups figure out how to take on their local nuke. Uh, this is what we specialize in. It's what we've been doing for the last 35 years. We can help groups understand the problems that are happening at their local reactor, where it might be vulnerable, what the key decision points are that they can engage in you know, with either the Nuclear Regulatory Commission or their state utility boards, those kind of angles, which they can use to really to be able to push their reactor towards closure. And that's that, that, that's really, you know, kind of in a nutshell what NEARS can do. Uh, we have a lot of expertise, not just in nuclear safety issues or nuclear sort of reactor finances, but in radioactive waste, decommissioning and uh, reactor cleanup issues, those kind of things, you know, which are really, you know, it really is a sort of a site-specific, reactor-specific process to, you know, to, to, you know, to close a nuclear power plant. And we've seen a lot of this happen over the years. Uh, we can also put people in touch with other grassroots groups that have been in similar fights and kind of cross-pollinate ideas about how to deal with your local nuke. So you're really a crossroads group for nuclear activists around the country who wish to connect with other groups, connect with the larger issue, and coordinate actions. That's right. That's right. I mean, the way we describe ourselves is as kind of the national networking and resource hub of the anti-nuclear movement. We help build relationships between grassroots groups and connect grassroots groups and national groups with, you know, also technical expertise and those kind of resources. And is there any final thought you would like to leave the listeners with as you are about to embark on this tremendously important and respected role that you are about to take for NEARS? This is really the time for us to bring the nuclear industry to a close. We have a window of a few years where we can really push the industry over the edge and begin making the industry irrelevant. And that's really an opportunity that we can't afford to miss. We've been fighting the fight against nuclear power for over 40 years as a movement. We've never had an opportunity like the one we have right now. You know, it's an incredibly optimistic time in that sense. But the time to act is now, and, and we really need to come together as a movement and, and figure out the best ways to do that. So I encourage people to get involved and to join and to work with NIRS. You can uh, go to our website, which is www.nirs.org, or you can reach us by the phone, 301-270-6477, or you can email us at nirsnet, N-I-R-S-N-E-T, at nirs.org. 
Tim Judson, it is a pleasure and an honor to have this opportunity to speak with you as you're about to launch on this new leg of your career. And we wish you every success, which of course will be success for all of us. And thank you for being the guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. Well, thank you so much, Lydia, and thanks so much for uh, you know for giving me the opportunity to talk and, uh, and for and for doing what you're doing on the issue. That was Tim Judson, the new executive director of NEARS. At NEARS.org, you can get all of their information and sign up for their email alert list, which will make you one of the first on your block to get all the information as it happens. And now, here's Radcast. This is Mimi German for the Radcast Report, radically relevant and the first of its kind. Today is Tuesday, January 14th, 2014. Remember, the Radcast alert is set at 100 counts per minute. We are enjoying a quiet period right now across the United States, minus just a few spots on the East Coast and in Colorado. Due to the rains, Durham, North Carolina is up a bit, averaging 32 with highs of 46 to averages of 32 with highs of 52. A rain kerfluffle, in the words of my teacher. Asheville, North Carolina is hitting highs of 86. We haven't seen those highs before, so something is in the rain in the southeast. Meter readers, get your meters out and do some rain swipes. Let Radcast know the results. Chicopee and Salisbury, Mass. are hitting highs in the 70s. These are not averages, folks. These are just the highs. Is it from leaks at the Pilgrim Nuclear Plant or rain? Who knows, in the words of Rumsfeld. Colorado is still seeing highs in the upper 90s and low 100s. Again, folks, I am talking about highs. Colorado, Lakewood, a high at 103. Colorado Springs has a high of 90. They have been averaging in the low 60s, the upper 50s, and that's still the same. Just their highs. We, we've also seen these highs in the last few weeks off and on. In the rest of the country, we've got a bit of some quiet time. Let's enjoy it. Go outside and play, unless you live in Massachusetts, North Carolina, and Colorado. Radcast would surely like to know what the reads are in South Carolina. So those of you down there, get in touch with us for meters and start to join in this conversation fueled by concerned citizens' desire for truth, understanding, and perspective in the world regarding radiation. Thank you. This is Mimi German for the Radcast Report. Here's today's final thought. Last week, several people took exception to nuclear hot seat number 133 and my The Sky Is Not Falling approach to exaggerated radiation readings and apocryphal jump-into-conclusion reports about Fukushima Unit 3 having another meltdown. Some people went so far as to say some pretty libelous things about me, all of which have been captured on screenshots and forwarded to my attorney, who is knowledgeable about Internet libel law. Ah, and he's a personal friend, so he doesn't charge me. The lies about me have gone away, but certain issues were raised which I would like to address here. First of all, I was accused of being a paid PR flack for the nuclear industry. To this I can only reply, LOL. If I'm a paid troll for the nuclear industry, I'd like to know where my paycheck is because I could really use the money. Also, the industry might like to examine the efficacy of supporting such a sustained blast of reverse psychology in promoting their technology. This is nuclear hot seat number 134. I didn't make up that number. I earned it one program at a time. Clearly, those accusing me of being in the nuke corner have never, ever 
listened to a single one of these shows. If those posters were paid trolls, they haven't done their research and deserve to be fired from their jobs. But here's the second part. If this was honestly someone taking umbrage with me because I didn't jump into their hysterical echo chamber and actually did some research with recognized experts to learn an alternative truth and that upset you, get over it. We are not all going to agree on methodology in our activism. We've all got our roles. My background, in part, is as a journalist. I check sources. I check dates. I ask questions of those who know more than I do. Then I report what I've learned as clearly as I can. If I make a mistake one week, I admit it and issue a retraction as soon as I learn of the need for it. I am neither the most radical nor the most conservative activist in our movement. My 100% allegiance is to the verifiable truth as I understand it and the use of everything in my power to communicate it to you, the listeners, with the goal of supporting this planetary movement to get rid of all things nuclear. Look, it's a given that we're not all going to agree with each other all the time. But at minimum, we must come from respect. There's a thing called the piranha complex. It refers to the tendency of people with very little power to fight each other over a larger portion of that little power, rather than banding together to fight the greater evil for a greater chunk of the real power. Why waste energy eating each other alive with accusations and direct attacks because somebody didn't agree with someone else or somebody felt excluded from a site that didn't line up with their own beliefs? But you get what you give. If you are an obstreperous fool demanding that other activists see it your way or else, go throw your tantrum someplace else. There is work to be done. That work does not include taking each other down or lashing out at respected activists because you have unresolved psychological issues stemming from a dysfunctional childhood. You don't have to agree with me. I don't have to agree with you. But I have every right to call bullshit when I see it flung at me and block the kerfuffle mongers. I don't have the time or the energy for internecine horse-pucky. So knock it off and get back to work on the aspects of the issue that calls to you. We have a world to save. And just remember, I've been trained by drag queens. You've been warned. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, January 14, 2014. Material for this week's program has been researched and compiled from enenews.com, rt.com, theherald.com, au, cbslocal.com in Los Angeles, Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, examiner.com, Kyoto News, Asahi Shimbun, Wall Street Journal, and formable.com, and our friend Lucas Hickson, Al Jazeera America, Fukushima Diary, and our friend Iori Mochizuki, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission itself, WOWTTV Omaha, FukuLeaks.org, TridentPlowshares.org, World Nuclear News, and the Nuclear Hot Seat Facebook community. Theme music written by me, sung by Mara Lee Weaver. Our archive is available on iTunes or at NuclearHotSeat.com slash blog. All comments welcome as long as you keep them civil. Nuclear Hot Seat is the activist voice on nuclear issues, so if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. We are copyright 2014, 
Libiha Lady and Heartistry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed. You can reuse this material as long as you provide proper attribution, website, and email. This is Libiha Lady of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that San Onofre is still shut down forever, and we've all had our nuclear wake-up call. So don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.